Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The Streams of Winter, live stream 10, Brienne of Tarth. Hello and welcome to the Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks so much to all of you for tuning in to this live stream this afternoon. Today we'll be talking about a really amazing character and what she might be doing in the Winds of Winter. It's Brienne of Tarth, everyone. What has led what has led Brienne into the hands of the BWB? What is now going to happen to her? And what will her future be in the upcoming book and beyond? To help me answer these questions, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Hey everyone, uh, really happy to be back here live streaming with you, talking all about Brianna Tarth this week. And this week our special guest here down down below us uh, is Tana Ford. When we wrote this uh, document, because this stream was supposed to be last week, we were going to introduce her as Eisner and Hugo Award-nominated artist Tana Ford. But since we wrote that, you've won not only an Eisner Award, but last night, a Hugo Award, awarded to you by none other than George R.R. R. Martin. I mean, you guys, you guys, George said my name. By the way, everyone needs to call me Tanya from now until forever because that's my name now. So, I said uh, to you last night, he could call me Jan for the rest of my life, and I'd be happy uh, with that. I don't care. Uh, I was like, signed Tanya, and then uh, my friend Zan wrote a T-A-N-A, but with like a, the little squiggle over the N, and I was like, that's it. That's the pronunciation. There, that's all you need. Just one little, one little, uh, one oh, little mark. What a night. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm still, if you guys, if I'm a little dazed, if I'm a little floaty, it's because I'm still out here on cloud nine. Yes. Well, that's okay. You can live there now. Uh, oh as as our friend Joe Magician said in the chat, your your legal name now is <laughs> yes. Hugo Award winner Tana Ford. <laughs> so that forever, and if if what? you want to live on Cloud Nine for the rest of your life, oh. that's okay. Too. Well, Tana, if you are on Cloud Nine, what you need is a, a good strong drink. Yes. What we do need you a good have? Strong drink. Uh, so, uh, I used to do a podcast called Westeros Whateverly with my friend Dave until he moved away and we realized that the special sauce was him and I in the same room just riffing and drinking themed cocktails. And so I made a blue beauty tonight to celebrate Brian of Tarth. Look at this blue, beautiful That is beautiful. That is beautiful. It's nice, right? Yeah. And we have a variation on a theme, which is one of my favorite things to do with themed cocktails. Uh, and so mine I made with a pink rosé instead of it's a, basically a gin and tonic mm -hmm. but i used a base of uh effervescent pink rosé mm -hmm. instead of tonic and then bombay sapphire yes gin 
uh, with a splash of blue curacao uh, mm-hmm. over ice and stir it in and you get this bright blue. Actually, um, oh, I don't know if you can see it. There might be a little bit left. I, uh, I initially made it in this little wine glass and you can see that the uh, blue curacao separates from the like light pink rosé. Yes. So you get this pink and blue oh, theme yeah. that uh, that I really love uh, and, and hope we can talk about in the episode. Mm-hmm. So it all comes back in. Yes. So that was my version of the blue beauty. What did you guys make? Well, we also made, uh, we're, we're, we're going to call them blue beauties too, but we did not have rosé. So we have also Bombay Sapphire. Uh, we've got blue curacao and we have elderflower tonic. Um, so it's there's a little bit of a flowery kind of thing in there to uh, so elderflower tonic. I a did not know exist and b sounds delicious. It it's really good. So yeah, oh, it's it pretty tasty. So it's not going to last no. long. Um, just oh, in case, man. I did I did bring an extra. So oh. <laughs> Oh, dear. Uh, Dave and I, back when we had our podcast, I made us a gift one year, Westeros Whateverly. You can't really see it unless it's all chilled, but it says, all men must drink. Which that is was your tagline. Tag oh. Okay, so today, a quick reminder of spoilers. We'll be talking about the books, sample chapters, and potentially making TV show comparisons. So spoilers everything, I guess. And now let's get started with a with a packed episode today, all about Brienne of Tarth. And today we're going to do something different because Tana wanted a quick lightning round of a game we're going to play st- called Stump Gwyn. What do you say, Tana? Stumpin' Gwyn. This is like this is a this is a, a section a segment that Dave and I came up with uh, because I would have to remind him of whatever topic we were talking about that day. So I'd give him easy questions to sort of get the juices flowing because we didn't really do any homework. We just talked about stuff we liked. So Stumpin' Gwyn, will you get the questions <laughs> right today? Stumpin' Gwyn. It's a lightning round. There will be five questions. Uh, I'll go through them as quick as possible, and there'll be, uh, I don't know how many right answers, but feel free to play along at home. <clears throat> Question one. In A Song of Ice and Fire, Brian of Tarth was raised to follow the faith of the seven, a religion that asserts there is but one God with many aspects or faces. Can you name all seven faces of this one God? All right. Father, mother, maiden, crone, warrior, smith, stranger. Yes, you got them all. Seven (laughs) points on the board. Now do I drink or what? (laughs) Uh, Yes, you can drink. Uh, Question two. In the world book, Maester Yandel writes... In the seven-pointed star, it is said that the seven themselves walked among the people in the hills of Andalos, and it was they who crowned Hugor of the hill and promised him and his descendants great kingdoms in a foreign land. While it may be fanciful to think the seven walked among the Andals, there has been an earthly avatar of the seven-faced god offering protection to both Brian and her ancestor Dunk. Which of the seven faces actively saves Brian and Dunk's lives. Yes, three possible answers and bonus points if you can name the event where they were saved. So what avatar, what of those seven, walks with them? Is it the, well, the maiden? Maiden when she said no? <laughs> 
It is. Just, can I just go through all seven? <laughs> it is the Smith. So no. when I was doing research for it's this, I uh, was reading some of The Hedge Knight, and I noticed mm-hmm. this quote, Steely Pate, the Smith from The Hedge Knight, who's upgrades to Dunk's armor and shield quite literally save his life, says this right before that holy battle of the seven. Dunk thinks, so many come to see me die, thought Dunk bitterly, but he wronged them. A few steps further on, a woman called out, Good fortune to you. And an old man stepped up to take his hand and said, May the gods give you strength, sir. Then, a begging brother in a tattered brown robe said a blessing on his sword, and a maid kissed his cheek. They are for me. Why? he asked Pate. What am I to them? A knight who remembered his vows, the smith said. Hmm. So in that light, can you think of any Smith that saves Brian's life in the main story? Oh, yes. Since you've given me the the answer of which which aspect of the seven I'm looking for. Yes, it'll be Gendry. And someone in the chat got there before me, too. Yes. No, don't. No spoilers, chat. Keep playing along at home. Uh, Yes, Gendry Baratheon, who is literally smithing at the Inn at the Crossroads. Gendry, she said in a low voice, you'll want a sword and armor. These are no man's friends. The boy came and stood beside her, his hammer in his hand. And then for the third one, do you have any guesses? So this is the smith, but he's not a traditional smith. That's the hint I'll give you. And he does play a big part in Brian's chapters, which is why I wanted to highlight him as a potential smith avatar walking on the world. Hmm. Um, he ha- he has a faithful dog. Yes, except for Maribald. Yeah, I think I think the argument I would like to make the argument that he is he is maybe a, an earthly avatar, right? Like I'm not saying that George is writing the Seven walking the earth, but I think it's a fun mm-hmm. thing I wanted to to point out. Here's the quote: Brian cleared her throat. At evenfall, my father's Septon always said there was but one god, one god with seven aspects. That's so, my lady. And you are right to point it out. But the mystery of the seven who are one is not easy for simple folk to grasp. And I am nothing if not simple. So I speak of seven gods. Maribald turned back to Podrick. I have never known a boy who did not worship the warrior. I am old, though. And being old, I worship the smith. Without his labor, what would the warrior defend? Every town has a smith, every castle. They make the plows we need to plant our crops, the nails we use to build our ships, the iron shoes that save the hooves of our faithful horses, the bright swords of our lords. No one could doubt the value of the smith, and so we name the seven in his honor, but we might easily have called him the farmer or the fisherman, the carpenter or the cobbler. And I wanted to point that out because I think so much of Brian's story is about defending the small folk, Mm -hmm. the laborers and the people of the seven kingdoms and so I find these little moments where, like, the smith just tends to show up with Dunk, with Brian, with Brian, and yeah, I would say bonus points if you name Donald Noy the most famous smith, maybe in the series. <laughs> uh, but he's up at the Night's Watch. So, <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, question four, lightning round. We're almost done. No chance and no choice. Brian at the Inn at the Crossroads is at the Inn at the Crossroads when outlaws led by a monster wearing a hound's helmet rides up, threatening violence. Question, how many outlaws are in this raiding party? 
This is wicked. Um, five? Seven. Seven. Of course there, there are. There are seven. Of course it's seven. Right? Of course there are seven. We're variations on a theme. Seven, Brian thought again, despairing. She had no chance against seven. She knew. No chance and no choice. Final question. Question number five. Uh, let's see here. Uh, uh, uh. Okay. Uh, the Revenant, and this one I think you guys will get. We'll see. I, I don't want to speak out of turn here. Uh, the Revenant, Caitlin Stark, finally speaks in Brian's last point of view chapter. Her words are translated to Brian telling her that Lady Stoneheart wants three things. Lady Gwen, what three things does Lady Stoneheart want? Uh, she wants to feed the crows like they did at the Red Wedding. She wants Ding. a phrase and Bolton's dead. Yes. And she wants Jamie Lannister. Ding, 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 ding. You got it all. You got it all. That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. That's the lightning round. Uh, bonus good. question for the audience if you want to just, uh, I don't know, get uh, an extra bonus point. Uh, what is Brian of Tarth's dad's name? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know uh, this, bonus, but I... Two bonus points are possible if, uh, an extra bonus point if you know his title or what they call him. Mm-hmm. So okay. two bonus points on the line. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you want me to t- so say or do- shall we just leave you it? You got to it. it. The floor is yours. Okay. Well, you know her, her father is uh, Lord Selwyn and his title is the Evenstar, which is probably a nod to Lord of the Rings. Ding, 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 ding. Although the even star in Lord of the Rings is female, but, you know, who cares? George can do what he you wants. You did it, guys. You, you <laughs> I, I was not able to stump Gwen. Stump yeah, you kind of stumped me. <laughs> I did not. We'll oh, you're there. so good. And your trivia is so good, too. Oh, so I never get more than half, it seems, from your trivia stuff. But thanks for playing along, guys. Uh, give a like and a subscribe. Buh, buh, buh. Yeah. Thank you for uh, thank you for bringing that. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right, should we get uh, we get going with what else? We got more to say about Brienne. We got loads to say, don't we? Let's turn to the analysis of Brienne, and we thought we'd start with a couple of really pertinent quotes, just as kind of groundwork for the rest of the episode. So here's an early description of Brienne. Beauty, they called her, mocking. The hair beneath the visor was a squirrel's nest of dirty straw, and her face. Brienne's eyes were large and very blue, a young girl's eyes, trusting and guileless. But the rest, her features were broad and coarse, her teeth prominent and crooked, her mouth too wide, her lips so plump they seemed swollen. A thousand freckles speckled her cheeks and brow, and her nose had been broken more than once. Pity filled Catelyn's heart. Is there any creature on earth as unfortunate as an ugly woman? And yet, when Renly cut away her torn cloak and fastened a rainbow in its place, Brienne of Tarth did not look unfortunate. Her smile lit up her face, and her voice was strong and proud, as she said, My life for yours, your grace. From this day on, I am your shield. I swear it by the old gods and the new. 
I love that. I love that introduction of her character. I did have a, a follow-up to this because I my question is, one of the things that I love about Brian's character is that she straddles the the place between man and woman, gender binaries. She, you know, she doesn't fit in one place or another. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast with you is because I'm a masculine presenting woman and it is rare to see reflections of people like me in media, especially popular media, stuff like this. And so Brian of Tarth with her sweet nature and her nonconformity just opens my whole heart. Um, and looking a little deeper, scratching the surface, <laughs> this is actually a shout out to Chloe from Girls Gone Canon cast. Uh, Chloe's clothing corner uh, changed how I think about it elevated how I think about the clothing in the show. I know that in the show that the books are based on, uh, in the show that happens in my mind, like Jamie Lannister, it's it's very important that he is wearing his golden armor and not his white armor when he upholds his knight's vows, but breaks his king's guard vows. So things like that I was able to get. But Chloe brought the dresses that Sansa wears that um, Cersei in her greens and in her blacks to this whole new level. Uh, and in and through that lens, I started looking at what Brienne of Tarth is described as wearing, especially because she's uncomfortable in ladies' finery and more comfortable in men's mail. And we get this later in that same introductory chapter to her. Brienne of Tarth had been seated at the far end of the high table. She did not gown herself as a lady, but chose a knight's finery instead. A velvet doublet quartered rose and azure, breeches and boots, and a fine-tooled sword belt, her new rainbow cloak flowing down her back. And while rereading that rose and azure, you'll notice there's a theme, stuck out to me because we have her wearing essentially the rainbow flag of gayness, right? Of of gender nonconformity, of otherness. And I wondered in this moment, is she also, is this a nod to the trans flag? Or if not directly to the trans flag, to what we consider in our culture to be male and female colors, pink and blue. And um, I printed out a thing. For those of you that don't know, this is what the trans flag looks like, right? So it's this powder blue and this rose. Uh, and so what do you guys think? Is this intentional? Is George quartering the velvet doublet quartered rose and azure? Like, is he doing this intentionally or did this just, what do you think? I think that perhaps the flags are not intentional, but you know, if that, if, if anyone wants to read it that way, I, I think that, that they should do. It's down, down to you to interpret it that way. I, I like what you said about the, the blues and the kind of reds or pinks as well as, as the kind of, um, the the spectrum of the male and female what what do you think lady Gwyn? exactly yeah and i i would i would think that that would be sort of have been on his mind whether it was intentionally referencing something or whether he was just thinking of like you know that the cultural pink and blue which is obviously where the trans flag comes from 
And I, I, I love that this could be read as a nod, as a nod to modern non-binary iconography, right? What better character than Brian of Tarth to be wearing, you know, to be wearing my flags, to be wearing my colors. You know, I am not a trans person, but I am a masculine presenting woman. And I don't know, I just love her so much anyway. So I wanted to drop in and uh, give a nod to Clothing Corner. Thanks. And I wonder from those quotes that we read, what else is being conveyed about her, Lady Gwyn? Well, there's something very important being conveyed about um, the contrast between physical beauty and inner beauty, which is going to be kind of very integral to her arc. And we're going to hopefully get get back to discussing that later. But the theme of beauty, very, very important. And, you know, you're kind of kind of hit with it right, right at the very beginning. She's immediately portrayed as as not beautiful. But we get to know her. And I but I love the I love the focus on the blue eyes too. how guileless, how young, how innocent. Everything else is so rough, so, you know, objectively ugly or, can, you know, is, is seen in the narrative as that. But the eyes. The, the window to the soul. They are. And, you know, and that, that'll bring us, that'll be another um, sort of a connection that we'll, I think, mention it a little bit later, too. But uh, those blue eyes really, to me, kind of call back to Sansa Stark, who has... These very, you know, she's also got big blue eyes and she's also very kind of innocent and they they do have a lot in common. They like to daydream, don't they, in their own ways? More in common than than you would think from the first introductions. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so as we're going to be talking about the Winds of Winter, why don't we set that up and go to A Feast for Crows on this kind of epic quest to find Sansa or, you know, ending up at Crackclaw Point and all around that area. So what do we learn in those chapters about Brienne and her character? And what is so important about the chapters? Because a lot of people dismiss dismiss them as kind of boring and unnecessary. But, you know, for Br- Brienne's character, they're quite integral. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Well, it's not just about Brienne. Uh, I mean, generally, this is the viewpoint of a region that is absolutely devastated by war. These chapters are kind of the definition of the feast for crows that comes after a brutal war has been waged in these lands. Um, But specifically to Brienne, this is where we gain her point of view. Uh, we learn a lot about her, we, about her hopes and her dreams, her backstory, what motivates her, which is honor, vows, all those things that are the essence of knighthood, the trappings of the true knight. And her backstory furthers the theme of uh, inner versus outer beauty as she seeks sense. Of, we learn, I was just saying, perhaps to our surprise, um, how much she and Sansa really have in common. They're idealistic. They venerate stories and legends. You think about Brienne remembering, you know, that story about uh, the maid uh, with the sword when she's at, when when they're at the Whispers, and also hearing Nimble Dick's, (laughs) Nimble Dick's stories. Hero, hero of the story, Nimble exactly. Dick, the great so, Nimble Dick crowd. <laughs> the true hero of, <laughs> of us all. 
but oh, like do a nimble dick show and just have little crab legs maybe we should just have a <laughs> nimble dick live stream someday uh but like sansa in a feast for crows we'll see that brienne spends an awful lot of time um being disabused of the notion that life is a song um, life does not follow along with these pretty little stories and legends. Uh, it's really much more grim and brutal than all of that. And they're they're on a parallel journey in that sense, I think. One of the things that I think uh, you've hit on is, so for Sansa, Sansa fits in the story, right? She gets to be the maiden. She gets to be the princess. She gets to be with the the hero. And Growing up, Brienne is idolizing the the knights, the men, the fighters, the warriors. She wants to be that thing in the story. She wants she holds up those ideals, and so Sansa can just one for one place herself into the stories, into the songs. But Brienne, in order for her to do it, she there has to be a kind of denial of self, or like she has to not see what she is, who she is, what her body is, in order to fulfill what are her ideals, her songs, mm-hmm. right? And that's going to create a kind of discordance in her, mm-hmm. um, which makes her one of the most fascinating and, you know, for me, one of the most beloved characters. I feel you, girl. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so in these Feast chapters, Feast is a book that really relies on themes. That You know, it's very strong thematically, and these chapters are no different. So, Tana, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your, your thoughts on the, the themes of this kind of uh, feast arc for Brienne. Uh, the themes are definitely about vows, what it means to be a true knight of Westeros. Um, when I think about Brienne, I always think about Dunk. I think about what it means to be a true knight, who gets to be a true knight, Um I love finding those kind of similarities and that golden ring that's unattainable for, you know, reasons of class or reasons of gender. Uh, the vow that Brian swears to Kat is one that tumbles around a lot. You guys had spoken in one of your most recent things about Kat, uh, Catelyn Stark and and the vows that, that she made Jamie swear at Sword Point, and you did beautiful analysis on it. One of the things, and I was thinking that um, the vow that Brian swears to Cat and that Cat swears to Brian are given to us so that later we're, those are they're going to both be broken. Quote: The tall girl knelt awkwardly, unsheathed Renly's longsword, and laid it at her feet. Then I am yours, my lady, your liege man, or, or whatever you would have me be. I will shield your back and keep your counsel and give my life for yours if need be. I swear it by the old gods and the new. And I vow that you shall always have a place by my hearth and meet and meet at my table and pledge to ask no service of you that might bring you into dishonor. I swear it by the old gods and the new. I think you're going to break that one, Catelyn. I don't think you're going to keep that one. Uh, uh, Later, the other, the like last note that I have in our document, spoiler, is the thought that Brienne... Brian has, after learning about Kat's murder, uh, of finding Sansa, quote, I will find her, my lady, Brian swore to Lady Caitlin's restless shade. Hmm. I will never stop looking for her. Oh, I will give up my life if need be, give up my honor, give up all my dreams, but I will find her. I think you're going to do that, Brian. I think George is going to make you do that. <laughs> mm, yes. Yeah. Uh, I think... Um... 
Yeah, he is. It's um, he's. I think that's fantastic. He's he's gonna. This vow thing is gonna be such a huge theme in the Winds of Winter. That triangle of vows between Jamie, Brienne, and Catelyn. Uh, the knots and loopholes that are created by those vows. Uh, I mentioned beauty earlier, and we'll keep coming back to this. But another theme we want to watch out for because it's very likely going to be relevant to the um, the BWB storyline, is and it's introduced in Brienne's chapters, is Broken Men. And it's a concept that we see really fleshed out in A Feast for Crows. And then finally, Thoros alludes to it in the Hollow Hill when he's talking with Brienne. He says, justice was what we were about when Beric led us, or so we told ourselves. We were king's men, knights and heroes, but... Some nights are dark and full of terror, my lady. War makes monsters of us all. Brienne, who's busy being disillusioned about nights, says, Are you saying we're monsters? He says, I'm saying we're human. You're not the only ones with wounds, Lady Brienne. Some of my brothers were good men when this began. Some were less good, shall we say. Though there are those who say it does not matter how a man begins, but only how he ends. Which is so great because that statement really, really, really feeds into the idea of redemption, which is something else that, you know, we'll maybe talk about a little in this one, but maybe in a different live stream. Yeah, it it, it really drives home the despair, I think, and, and how you can start with such noble, lofty goals to be the king's men, to protect the small folk, and fall so far from that, that... that one of the things that I love about the series as a whole is that there are consequences. Actions have consequences. Theon is tortured and uh, loses parts of himself. It changes who he is, right? Like the broken men break. They're different. They're, they don't get to be Robin Hood anymore. They're not, they get lost. And uh, and I love that, you know, and in the finality of saying it's not where you start, it's where you end is terrifying, I think it is. It is for some of them. I mean, but you can flip that around and say it may be for some of them. It it might be maybe the ones that start out less good might end up more good. Maybe like a Jamie Lannister. Perhaps. (laughs) Maybe if we're lucky. So I guess Brienne's challenge is to not break and to be the one character who started off with noble ambitions who, you know, she, she gets wrecked in the Feast for Crows. She gets her face torn. Is she going to carry, you know, pay that forward to someone else? Or is she going to carry on being a kind of noble character? I think we all know that she's got a, a pure heart and that she's headed for good things. Okay, so I was thinking about the relationship in these Feast chapters between Brienne and Podrick. And it really reminds me of... Uh, one of the book a book that I love, Don Quixote. I think that's a purposeful nod in some places, but it also carries parallels within the text. Lady Gwyn, what what's the parallels I'm talking about? Three words: dunk and egg. <laughs> Just three words for that one. <laughs> okay, so patron Quarren Halfhand points out that Brienne is a confirmed relative of Duncan the Tall. So how is this all relevant? Do you think it's relevant, Tana? I do. And I think that the the 
the same themes and struggles that we see Duncan Egg going through, we're seeing Brian and Pod going through. Um, but we're also seeing the an examination, I think, of what it means to be an outlaw or a broken man. Um, the second of the Duncan Egg no- novellas is called The Sworn Sword. And that story opens with a pair of skeletal outlaws in a crow cage hanging face to face with their tongues torn out. And it says, quote, skeletons in skin and the skin is green and rotting. It could be they were in some outlaw band. At dusk, they had heard a harper sing, The Day They Hanged Black Robin. Ever since, Egg had been seeing gallant outlaws behind every bush. Dunk had met a few outlaws while squiring for the old man. He was in no hurry to meet any more. None of the ones he'd known had been especially gallant. He remembered one outlaw, Sir Arlen had helped hang, who had been fond of stealing rings. He would cut off a man's fingers to get at them but with women, he preferred to bite. And when I read that, I was like, I see what you're doing, George. I think you're gonna, I think I see what you're doing here. (laughs) Maybe we have outlaws like to bite, I guess, with women. (laughs) Funny, huh? (laughs) That's as deep as my analysis goes, guys. (laughs) Okay, at the end of Feast... Brienne bravely takes on members of the Bloody Mummers, as we've been as it's been in the discussion so far. So Brienne really wants to defend orphans at the orphanage that that is the in the crossroads. So why don't we review what exactly happened in this fight? Because it's really leading up to the climax of Brienne's arc in that book. Lady Gwynne, take us away. What happened in this? in this fight here? Well, she basically she's faced two monsters from her past and survived. There's two less bloody mummers in the world, but the cost is the revelation of Brienne's apparent Lannister affiliation to the Brotherhood Without Banners, which in turn places her quest to find Sansa Stark in jeopardy. And that is everything to her because as we've seen, and not only uh, is it is it based on it finding Sansa, but it's 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 the finding you know it's Jamie's honor. It's something she's doing for Jamie, and that not to mention the physical cost to her, of course, from this this battle at the end with with these bloody mummers, which is tremendous. Yeah, and then of course, Lady Stoneheart led the BWB to take Brienne captive. And Lady Stoneheart, she's very vengeful, as we know, and she threatens to kill not only her, but her companions, Hyle and young Pod. You know, he's a boy. George says Brienne shouted the word sword in order to save them all. So when Brienne shouts the word sword, she's really entering into some kind of verbal contract with the BWB and Lady Stoneheart. So, so what are the implications then, Lady Gwyn, of what whatever Brienne has just agreed to that she doesn't even realise? Mm-hmm. Well, she's apparently just promised to kill Jamie Lannister, or at least deliver him to the Brotherhood to face their justice, which apparently these days just amounts to hanging people out of turn. So uh, we'll probably come back to the theme of vows. <laughs> <laughs> Again, uh, we've been there quite a bit today. It's 
pretty important. But right here, she's made this new vow, which is in direct opposition to a number of past vows. So we start to see the vows getting kind of tangled up, right? Uh, most pertinently, the vow she, she made to Catelyn to keep Jamie safe. She swore, I will keep him safe and deliver him, you know, so, okay. And then she's got her nightly vows that she strives to live by, which over and over again, we see variants of a true knight is sworn to protect those who are weaker than himself or die in the attempt in her point of view. So killing a man without a sword hand, one who she was previously ordered to protect and to whom she herself has made vows of her own is definitely going to result in some strong cognitive dissonance for our lady knight yeah. yeah and she's seen him naked whoa and she and she loves him so there's that right like it's a, it's complicated people are complicated <laughs> yeah yeah even brienne is is not past having her own you know feelings and urges and so on right i don't think she even really knows what they are but she yeah, but she has not. them maybe not yet oh. Oh. poor girl i just feel like she should be on a softball team somewhere <laughs> Sweetie. it's true so now we know from a dance with dragons that brienne has in fact intercepted jamie lannister and sort of tricked him it's not really her call, but that's what she had to do. And so this old pair are reunited once again. <laughs> so where is this plot line and kind of dual arc headed? And also, are are they in real danger? You know, uh, uh, could we see both of them murdered in the upcoming book? What do you think, Tana? I have a question for you two geniuses, because I know you just did this recently. How far away is the hollow hill from where Jamie is? You guys just timed this out because like you, you, you did the math of the, you know, the BWB secret network and where Jamie is and where he moved and by midnight and like you've done it. So do we know how long they have to ride together until they get to where they're going? Do you, do we have any guesses on that? Uh, I'm just my guess is she says to him when she meets him at Penny Tree there and says, come with me. You know, it's a day's journey to get to Sansa. The hound has her. We have to, you know, I believe that's probably accurate. I believe it's about a day's journey to the hollow hill from where they are, because what they have to do is get from Penny Tree, which is kind of midway from Raven Tree to River Run. And then from there down to the hollow hill, which is quite near, um, high heart and yep, yep, just right. a little bit south of river run so I just, I think about a day's journey is probably right i can't i can't imagine that like that jamie that they don't have a conversation it is hard for me mm. one it would be boring but two jamie wants to talk to his girlfriend and like she and she's really fucked up her face is all bit up and she looks terrible and he's worried about her and he loves her and so i i feel like they're gonna have to talk about it and she's not good at finding her way out of conversation smoothly uh but he's great at conversation so i wonder if there'll be something there if something will happen there or he'll pick up on something you know but as far as her killing him never no man not that's not how this goes they're gonna they're gonna dance with swords but it's not gonna be like that 
No, I, I also don't think that they are in real danger in terms of like, can we see them dropping out the story at this stage? I think George has got very full arcs planned for Cersei, Brienne and Jamie, And I don't see any three of them like dropping out the story early. There is that weird dream, the weirwood stump dream that Jamie has. And in it, you know, he's got his lit up sword and then Brian arrives to sort of save him. And she's asking, where are we, Jamie? Who are these? And uh, his sword goes out, but hers stays lit. Um, and the beasts that she asks about in that section are, and I don't have them exactly, but I think it is a cave lion. What's down here, Jamie? Is it a cave lion? dire wolves a bear and he says no ghosts and i wonder if those three like why choose those three why choose a cave lion jamie lannister dire wolves the bwb or a bear i mean maybe it's a stretch that brian is a bear but she was fighting one and also it tied into the bear pit fight so like maybe there's some imagery nods there just like a little a sprinkle like a little susan a little dash of bitters on the top there maybe <laughs> right uh, yeah, I, I definitely think that, that that dream is pertinent to what's about to happen with them. I think uh, we, we talk about it in our current episode that actually the dream probably has multiple meanings. Sorry, right? it, it definitely has when he has the dream, it's what convinces him to go back to get to get her out of the bear pit. Uh, it, it may have more meaning, you know, in the future. There There may be more. Uh, more to it going forward but I think if you think about it Jamie underground facing the ghosts of his past with Brienne at his side and she's holding a sword that is in the way of dreams the identical sword to the one that his father just had just given him uh, which Tywin hadn't given Jamie a sword when he had the dream but then he did give him a sword which Jamie gave to Brienne I think that can be viewed as a, a metaphor for what is going to happen in this trial by Lady Stoneheart if 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 he has a trial, if he's granted a trial, which I think it will be, in the Hollow Hill. So he's going to have to answer to all the ghosts or crimes of his past, right? So that's... And, and she's... Yes? What's the sword's name? Stumping Gwen, what's the sword's, sword's name? name is Oathkeeper! It's about Go back to old. vows... <laughs> It's All almost of that. like there's yes. themes. <laughs> and she is going to be the one that, that's, you know, is there standing. His sword goes out, meaning he can't fight for himself. So when he has this trial, the person that is going to be his champion with the sword, Oathkeeper, which was given by Tywin. Uh, is gonna be which has Ned's blood in it, by the way. By oh, the way. Yes. Oh boy. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's Ned's own sword, right? Which is cut in half, split, but then also has Ned's own blood in it. Yeah. Like this. <sighs> Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, I want to stay on this, the topic of this trial and explore further about this trial, because this will be the first thing in the next book from this storyline. So... Patron Christine wonders if there's a chance Jamie will be tried for his perceived crimes and have to defend himself in a trial by combat. What would be the options there and how might the theme of vows be employed? Lady Gwyn, have you got anything to say? I know you have. <laughs> yes, we talked about this all day long. It's a big topic with a capital B and a capital T. There is this triangle of vows between Jamie, Bran and Kat that is going to take front and center when they are reunited for the first time since a clash of kings so think about that it's gonna be so good you know three whole books it's the event of the century it will be this event has everything it's got dire it's got cave lions it takes place in a hollow hill (laughs) it's got broken men and outlaws (laughs) it's got brian And a flaming, well, maybe this time it's metaphorically flaming sword. It's got a fire priest. What's not to like? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, God. Yep. Mm. The theme of vows will be endlessly important. Yes. It's going to be so good. And I wonder, so what is your take? Just what is your take on how Lady Stoneheart is going to be when we see her in Brian's chapter? She has to like hold. Is it am I making this up? She had to like hold her throat together to make words. And then it's translated through Lem or a Northman or something. Yeah, we never we don't hear her. We only see what she does. And like, Mm -hmm. we we see her translated. I think that might be building up to a big moment where she sits in judgment with Rob's crown. She's got Rob's crown now. And uh, what do you want to see, the two of you? What do you hope for? Give me, like, pull back the curtain and let me see inside your beautiful minds. What do you think Catelyn Stark is going to be like as Mother Merciless in front of Brian and Jamie? It's going to be interesting to see if there's any, you know, to what extent there's a human being with the usual yes you know what what's her limit is she is she completely lost it with zero limits will she kill anyone she perceives as a foe rightly or wrongly or is there some sense of justice and fairness and this is where the vows come in because that is the one thing that should appeal to her as Mm -hmm. a you know a former lady of the nobility she should recognize the vow that she swore with brienne Mm -hmm. And with Jamie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and there's that thing with uh, Beric as he died. He died six times or something, and he lost more and more of his humanity. She was dead for three days and is, you know, super messed up, but she's only come back once. You would think that she's got, and I guess that's the big question how much of her humanity remains inside her? But, you know, is she still in some way human? Is she just an avatar of revenge and destruction and death i wondered where the two of you in your private minds are thinking on this um you know i I think i think that it would be a sort of betrayal of catelyn if there was zero of catelyn left in this character you know she must carry forward something just a small remnant of you know i thought she was a beautiful person on the whole and it would be a betrayal of her just to kind of resurrect her as just this, 
mindless, scheming zombie that will just kill everyone, you know, rightly or wrongly. I, I think that, that that would be going too far and that it would be far more interesting if there was some kind of conflict within Lady Stoneheart. Yeah, yeah. Because she does, she she's the mother, right? Like, if we're talking about the avatars of the seven-faced god walking the earth, Catelyn Stark is the mother. And if she thinks very, she thinks about Brian when they first meet in the opening description you read, Yoke Boy, of her almost childlike, right? There's a mother's perspective looking at this human being. And I wonder if any of that is still retained in what she has become uh and that the strong arming up front the i i thought i thought pod uh pile of hyle and brain were all dead right like i had no idea that pod's not dead and that hyle might still be alive i thought they were just dead and that the bwb is a bunch of murderers and i just take it at face value i don't think critically about this stuff which is why i need you guys to tell me no they're still alive Lady, uh, you know, uh, Mother Merciless is doing a thing here. She's proving a point. And so I wonder how much of it is strong arming at first to come back and and flip the script, change, you know, people that just read it at face value like me, flip the script and and reveal that Catelyn is still alive or that some part of her, that there's a bigger plan or something. Is she is she moving Jamie around the board and Brian around the board to a purpose? And the reveal of what that purpose might be, I think, could be really satisfying because they always are with George. <laughs> that hat, that hat he wore last night, you guys. He wore a silver hat like this. Oh my god. <sighs> For your award. That was oh, great. That hat. Who knew that hat existed? Anyway. Oh, there was a, I saw in the scroll a, a question I wanted, I, I never thought about this. So let me tangent again. If a Valyrian steel sword is lit on fire by Thoris of Myrrh, it, would it react differently than common steel? Thoughts? I, I think it would be uh, harder or impossible to damage. You, you know how you can light a, a, a standard sword on fire and it will kind of weaken it. And yet, then you have to take it to uh, Tobo Mott to get it fixed. Yes, but but I, I imagine with Valyrian steel that you could you know do that you know if if a magician could do that and it would probably not not degrade the steel because they they stay sharp and stuff. I'm just thinking that they're more durable, right, in a magical way. Yes, and there's the there's the whole idea that dragon fire shapes you know, can smooth stone and they can weave it and whatever. And the idea that fire is the, you know, the elemental thing of of Targaryens and Valyrians. And so I had never considered this. Your <laughs> chat people are freaking brilliant. That's such a great point. I don't know. And in the dream, the, the swords are on fire, they are. man. <laughs> they are. Yeah. <laughs> uh. And so what happens? What happens when it's on fire? That would be, I mean, and that would just be badass. That would just be really great. Cer certainly would, especially when you carry it forward to the upcoming war against the others and you you know you need to kill as many whites as possible and a flaming sword would be a great help, wouldn't yes. it? Yes. Maybe it makes it sharper or, you know, there's some sort of magical quality to it or something. Okay, so why don't we go back to what we were talking about Stoneheart. So she's got reasons in her own in her own mind to despise both Jamie and Brienne. So do we see them getting out of their situation or not? 
given that the odds are stacked against them. But maybe story-wise, it's a different story. What do you think, Tana? I think, so based on the vows and the idea that Catelyn could be thinking, you know, playing three-dimensional chess would all work out, except the last thing she heard was the Northern, what's his name, Ramsay's dad, say, Jamie Lannister sends his regards. So the thing that's so brilliant about this series is that instead of following specific story notes one after another, did this chapter, this chapter, this builds to that, it has all that. But then George drops this hammer that root like scatters all the pieces everywhere. So we could expect Catelyn to behave a certain way, except the last thing she heard before she saw her son murdered and everyone die was Jamie Lannister sends his regards. I, and I feel like that's, I that's I don't have an answer. I I only have an oh my god, there's pieces everywhere now. Yeah. It's it's hard to overcome. What do you think it's gonna do? What do you think? It's gonna make it very, very difficult. I, I do think that there is going to be a demand for a trial similar to the way uh that Sandor was granted a trial. Because we've seen that even if it's a, a mockery, they do still give trials. Uh, they gave Bran a trial. Didn't they give Merit uh, a, a, a weird trial? They gave Merit a trial. It was kind of a weird, like, you know, it was a total, uh, just like a kangaroo court, I think is what, you know, it was a sham. But but they still do it. And I so I think that if Jamie and Brienne say, well, hey, 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 we need a trial here. You, you give trials, that's what the Brotherhood, that's what you guys do. So we want a trial. And then I think once that happens, uh, you know, the, the, the demand a trial by battle. And that'll, that'll be the way out. Because once the gods find, find him innocent, in the same way they had to release Sandor Clegane, they, they will have to release him. So it will come down to... Except remember, remember what happened after Sandor sort of talked his way out of it and was like, you don't have, you know, this is all circumstantial. Yeah. You can't prove it. I'm walking out of here. Remember what happened? Yes. Then Arya comes. Arya yeah. was like. <laughs> comes up with her. Arya was like, I don't think so. You murdered yeah. a baby. So, but then he, he has his trial and he kills Beric. Kills Beric. So. So um, Brienne might have to best Lem, possibly. That was our, because of his stature and his. I didn't even think of that. Well, thinking that it has to be Lem. But I feel like because doesn't Lem kind of occupy the the spot of villain? He is the bad guy. He is the broken man who's actually out for blood and vengeance. Mm-hmm. He he's the Punisher. He doesn't have a family left. Well, I guess he's not actually the Punisher, but like he's he wants revenge. That's his whole yeah. deal. That's what he wants. Just blood and guts. That's what he wants. It's the only thing he cares about at this point. And so it makes him villainous in a way. And he's wearing the, the, the helm. as He started of wearing the, the helm. So if you want a bit of kind of symbolism, there you go. Be just another parallel to that trial, right? So it would, it would make... S- mm-hmm. It would make sense for Brienne to try to kill the hound, right? She has to kill the hound. But... George loves villains, and it's sad to lose a good one. And I feel like, is he really going to let a chaos agent, you know, who's dragging the BWB in a less noble, down Mm -hmm. a less noble path, is he really going to let him die? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Yes? (laughs) Yes, the answer is yes. Move on. (laughs) 
it'll be that huge um, broken man theme because Lem is, I believe, who Thoris was talking about when he said some of you know some of us were were good men when this began, and I do think that Lem, whether he has a secret identity or not. He does. He definitely does. If he has a secret identity, then you have a then you have a double kind of broken man theme going on. But even if he doesn't, he has become this broken thing. If it's all about how we end up and not like all the bad stuff you do in the middle, does Lem get redeemed in some way? Does he get like maimed or wounded or something? And it's and he realizes, I don't know, that he has to fight for the BWB or he doesn't want to miss the red wedding part two. So he's going to have to survive without an arm, uh, like out of a, you know, it's just a scratch like that. Is that going to happen? No, we can't. We can't this know. is why we've got to patiently wait for the winter winter. <laughs> Many ways this could play out, but. Mm. Why don't we assume that Brienne and Jamie survive Lady Stoneheart. And at some point, either they, are released or they make an escape or somehow, you know, move on with their lives from this capture. So in the TV show, we saw Brienne head north to find Sansa Stark, part of her vow with Jamie and Oathkeeper. So do you think that Brienne could similarly head north in the books? Was this something that the... The showrunners just made up, or is this something based in what they know about the, the 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 upcoming book? What do we think, guys? Short answer: Yes, sure. Why not? Because that brings her closer to some of to several of the things that I think are unresolved in her arc. Number one, Sansa, principally Sansa, but then there's another there's another uh, big Baldy that is unresolved in her arc that uh, is currently... Are you talking about Stannis when you say baldy? Yes. <laughs> is Stannis canonically bald? Did I miss that? Yes, he yeah. he's a big baldy. Bald. He, he's got a little bit of hair and it looks like a crown. <laughs> big teeth grinding, tooth grinding baldy. <laughs> Patron Agnishka wonders if Brienne could really kill Stannis in the books is Brienne too good of a person to go through with a deed and will she ex- or will she excuse herself from the vengeance somehow maybe it could be a mercy killing so I thought about this and thought you know if it did come down to her killing Stannis and I, I thought that what we saw in the show wasn't a million miles away from what could happen I know a lot of people don't think it but I thought that 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 um, scene had a lot of things resonating that fit together strangely well. So sometimes knights have to do things that they don't want to do, even good knights. Remember that on Tarth, during her training, Brienne had to kill pigs. She hated it. It haunted her. She had nightmares. But then later she proved herself at Crackclaw Point with the Bloody Mummers. So it shows that she did all that stuff she didn't want to do. But it was all part of her becoming a, you know, a, a, a true and efficient knight. Even if not, not by name. So Brienne is capable of killing and she holds her vows very dear. I suspect if Stannis makes some kind of confession that he did in fact know about Renly's shadow assassin, Brienne would feel fully justified 
in ending Stannis for personal and for knightly reasons. And uh, Agnieszka's point about it could be a mercy killing is also a good one. I think there could be a culmination of valid reasons to kill Stannis if that's the way it goes. And remember that she took this vow and she explained to Catelyn... My, you know, my first ambition is to kill Stannis above everything else. That dates back to a clash of kings. Listen, I don't think George is going to put something like saying, like, um, you know, hey, I'll be, I'll be doing this, and you know, for however long you want me to. But mark my words, the day will come when I will kill Stannis Baratheon. I don't think he puts that there for no reason. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's Chekhov's murder threat. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and while we have a theme of vows, we also have a theme of mercy and what it means to be mercy or merciless. And so if you're correct in tying this into some kind of mercy killing, uh, it would definitely fit the themes. If it, you know, if we if Brian skews dark, which I, I don't see happening, but again, I don't see any of this happening. Is it Heil dead? Uh, then I, you know, it could go whatever way, but I, I just, you know, to the North, I guess. Uh, question for the, for the group. Did, when the shadow assassin kills Renly and, and Catelyn and Brian see it, Catelyn knows what Stannis looks like. Does Brian? Does she recognize the shape of the shadow? Because I think where it's Catelyn's point of view, right? And she sees that it looks like Stannis. And then they talk about it later. I guess my question is, does Brienne know that the shadow was Stannis already? Or is that something she'll find out? Because I think she knows it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think she she realizes it because um, she had just seen Stannis. She was with them when they had their parlay with Stannis. That's right. The, That's that right. day. So even if she had never seen him before, she had seen him very recently. So she might, and as he's eating, no, it was Renly eating the peach. I was like, as he was eating the peach, maybe she saw his little profile. (laughs) No, not wrong guy. (laughs) Wrong peach He was grinding his teeth at the time. (laughs) Giving the peach (laughs) or not, or refusing the peach. Yes. Uh, I don't have a sense of humor. (laughs) Oh dear. So why don't we talk about a different theme? We've talked about all sorts today. Why don't we talk about knighthood and Brienne's servitude? Brienne is fighting all kinds of prejudices by being a woman in a man's world who will not bow down to gender expectations. So as a woman, as women, to both of you, how important is a character like Brienne in this story? How inspirational? Tanner, I'd love it if you could answer this. Oh, I mean, my heart, I, I, this is just the fangirl podcast of me saying how much I love Brian and how important it is to see somebody who's a masculine presenting female who is possibly intersex, possibly straddles the line, obviously straddles the line between genders, um, doesn't feel comfortable really or safe in either world. It is unsafe for her to be a woman. It is unsafe for her to be a man. These are things as a woman that I'm constantly aware of. Um, The universes that I exist in are comics and to some degree literature. And in the comic books culture, thankfully, we're getting more diverse voices. We're getting more stories told from more perspectives. But I am acutely aware of my queerness and my 
femaleness, my womanness at shows and out in public. And I think it's very much science fiction has been a man's world for a very long time. The world has been a man's world for a very long time. And we don't even live in Westeros. So everything about Brian's struggle is, you know, has echoes of what I feel in my real life, but amplified, amplified in this, you know, in this feudal system that is not designed to empower women, to give women agency over themselves. And Brian is out here being a better knight, a bigger fighter, uh, a more noble soul, and innocent all at once. She is, you know, she's the perfect woman. <laughs> and so I, I, my love for her is abiding and huge. Wow, that, that was a really beautiful speech. I'm so glad that we captured it here. Really amazing. Thanks, Tana. So, uh, Lady Gwyn, I've got a question for you. Patron Ashenot Yara points out that Brienne always seems to define herself by the lord or lady she is pledged to. Do we think she will move on from that and become more confident in herself? Uh, well, she's going to have to. She really is. She is going to be, whether Westeros likes it or not whether they want to accept her for who she is or not, she's going to be the Lady of Evenfall Hall someday. She's going to be the Lady of Tarth. Her father is going to die. He has no other heirs. She talks about it all the time. She thinks so. He deserved sons or whatever. She feels, you know, it's that part of her, her self-loathing. But she's it. She's the heir to Tarth. And uh, this might happen sooner than, than we might think or that she might hope because... Uh, at the end of A Dance with Dragons, it's noted that there is an invading army of sellswords on Tarth. So I fear for Lord Selwyn. And I, I fear that somehow very soon Brienne's arc, you know, maybe the end, maybe we get to the end of Winds of Winter and she finds out something has happened to her father. And she's now the Lady of Tarth. I never even thought of that. I never even thought of that. And I made a note of the fact that the Golden Company landed on Tarth or that they were thinking some of their ships landed on Tarth or something. I never thought Lord Selwyn would die, you guys. I'm such a sucker. I never thought of it until recently either. I mean, and you know, th things could happen. He could, maybe he just joins them or something, you know, maybe, yeah. who knows? We don't really know anything about him, right? Like, we don't, we don't, we know nothing. We don't have a description of him, how big or small, how... How old or nothing, fragile right? or not, or, or what how, kind of yeah. a warrior he is or, or not, you know. Or, yeah, yeah. We, all we know is that he, he yeah. sort of accepted Brienne. I mean, he kind of tried to marry her off and eventually just gave up and said, okay, well, it just... Whatever. Wait. He's Marla Hooch's dad in the amazing film uh, A League of Their Own, <laughs> right? Like, Brian is Marla Hooch. Hooch, Hooch. What do you recommend? A lot of night games. But it's the dad who, you know, has this kid that doesn't fit into her gender, but is a slugger. And he has that great line in the movie, you know, if, if she were a man, I'd be talking to the Yankees right now. You know, and, and, and the love that that dad in that movie gives to, you know, obviously it feels for Marla is so palpable and sweet. And so in my mind, I, my headcanon is always that uh, Lord Selwyn is just Marla Hooch's dad, you know, and he opens his cabinet and it's all just like coffee mugs that say world's number one dad. Like that's all they have there. Uh, anyway, and they're all sapphire blue. Yeah. <laughs> Ding. 
Okay, we've got time for one more topic, and I think you're both going to enjoy this topic. Something tells me that. So, I want to talk about this fascinating relationship between Jamie and Brienne, and in brackets, Cersei as the kind of completer of the triangle. I have always thought of Jamie, Brienne, and Cersei's dynamics as this triangle I keep mentioning. Cersei offers her kind of darkness to Jamie, but Brienne brings the best out in him. Do you agree with this assessment, Lady Gwyn? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. First, as far as Jamie and Cersei, I want to say that um, in in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion says to Cersei, I never understood what Jamie saw in you apart from his own reflection. And in Jamie's first point of view chapter, we get this as he's newly released into the Riverlands with Brienne. It says, the reflection in the water was a man he did not know. Not only was he bald, but he looked as though he had aged five years in that dungeon. His face was thinner with hollows under his eyes and lines he did not remember. I don't look as much like Cersei this way. She'll hate that. And for what it's worth, she really did. She was pissed. She really did. But I think this business of those two being each other's reflections is highly pertinent because in uh, in Storm of Swords and A Feast for Crows, they start to see each other for what they truly are, especially Jamie and to Cersei, or Jamie viewing Cersei, what his opinion of her is. But by contrast, Brienne's influence has allowed Jamie to see himself for who he truly is. And she's really mediating this change in his arc. She's offering him a mirror to his soul. So I, I think that that sort of idea of reflections versus versus of maybe a window, if you will, uh, is, is going to be very pertinent. Uh, one of the things that I love is the idea of being seen, of being truly seen. And I think with Jamie and Cersei, what they were seeing was a reflection of themselves. And Jamie does, and now he, so he's not being seen by Cersei. He's, you know, she's seeing what he can be to her, and he is seeing a reflection of himself in a sort of narcissist kind of way. Um, and when Brian sees Jamie in that bath, when he confesses to her, he is seen for the first time in his life and and recognized. And as a queer person, being seen, having your secrets melt away and being seen, you know, in this dangerous way, if people knew this thing about me, I wouldn't be safe. And then I still remember, you know, coming out, and I know this is a far stretch, but Brian seeing Jamie matters, I think. And he feels for the first time in his life, like someone sees him, him, not the reflection of his sister, him. And who am I? And and what does that mean? And who can I be? And and he starts and it starts his big journey into, you know, becoming upholding, choosing what vows you want to uphold, choosing, you know, your moral compass, leaning into it, deciding who you are. And I think, you know, that's the power of recognizing someone, of of actually looking at them, of seeing them, of being seen. And I feel that through all their chapters. Yeah, I, I don't think that's a stretch at all. Sorry, I I think that any human being just wants to be seen. You know, whatever you know, whoever you are, you you want to and respond to being seen 
as yourself, not as something that other people want you to be. And and, and Brienne is also seeing him and, and she's like a peer, someone he can respect, someone who knows his his little trade of being a swords person. So it's kind of being respected by a peer as well. It's really fascinating dynamics. So the next question, will will this kind of triangle we're talking about develop further into a love triangle if it isn't already? I think that it is a love triangle. It They may not do the same things as stand you know that you see on a rom-com it's not the same dynamics there but they've got this respect there are some moments they have uh, they did they they have moments for sure and there's a definite <laughs> there's a definite romance even if it's not the kind you're used to in the way they admire each other i think and it this is only going to get deeper right Part of, I think, what draws Jamie to Brian is that she's good at what he's good at. Yep. She's at the top of her field. He, they're fighting with swords, and he only confesses it in, you know, when we get his point of view chapters, and he thinks, she was holding back. She could have kicked my ass. Like, I am used to being, you know, the lion of Casterly Rock. I am the best there is, and she just beat me because she was holding back. And there is this like-recognize-like, this respect for game, and and so it's not only that he feels seen, but she does. She excels at the thing he excels at. Very few people in the world do that. And now you have this woman who also sees him, but is better than him or as good as him, but nobler. There is something so powerful about that connection that Jamie, of course, is drawn to her because of this. Um, oh, I I love this love story. He can't dismiss her. He he in his mind he dismisses people, you know, and That's kind of looks point. down on them when he's, you know, before yeah, he yeah. changes a bit. Uh, he can't dismiss Brienne. He can't do it because she's walked the same line he's walked, and she she's you know matching him. So yeah, it's a good. But even uh, remember when they're going down the river and they're trying to get away from the River Run men, and Brian jumps out of the boat and climbs up the hill, and it's so cinematic. I see that scene come to life. And he's watching her like, what is this? I'm free, right? Like, this is, what is this? And she gets a huge boulder and throws it like a superhero and it smashes the boat. And then she runs down and like dives in the water and swims like a champion. And, you know, like the, like an Olympic athlete in his back and then just like starts rowing, like we're free now. (laughs) And he's like, what did I just see? Jamie can't do that. Nobody could do that. He just saw this, you know, godlike situation and it... And he's speechless about it, right? Because she is that, she's dunk. She's she's herself. She is, there is no one, Jamie's famous line, there are no men like me. Girl, there are no, no one, people right. like Brian in this story. Mm-hmm. And he recognizes that. Truth. Excellent. So finally, to both of you, why does, we've covered this just now, but let's go further. Why does Brienne like a character like Jamie, who entered the story as such a scoundrel, you know, everybody, you know, everyone reading hated him at one point. Why does Brienne like him? Well, look, first of all, he shared trauma. Okay, shared trauma brings people together, full stop, right? At first, before they're, they've gone through this stuff, she hates him. But he, then she starts to, to kind of admire his skills, kind of like 
that's that's a two way street because he's admiring her, and you you see that uh, because we're seeing it through his point of view. But uh, she's admiring him. Then she learns that he's been tragically misunderstood. This is something that kind of paints someone in a wounded animal kind of light. And when you are a sensitive person that loves stories and legends like Bran, this is very attractive. You know, you've got this kind of sad little little wounded animal that's so misunderstood and you just want to take care of him. You want to gather him up and make everything okay for him, right? So I, I think for someone that's as motivated by idealism as her, that's very, very powerful. And I believe that in the end, we're going to see that it's very easy to turn strong feelings such as she had for him at the beginning of kind of loathing kind of on their ear. And they have really just morphed into a completely different kind of strong feeling. One of one of the things what you just said reminded me that initially Brian does despise Jamie and makes no bones about it, but she still treats him with respect and dignity. And Jamie, when he disrespects somebody, does not treat them with respect or dignity. So he views this in those early moments as a weakness of Brian, something he can exploit. And later in his private thoughts, we see that he sees that as a point in her favor, that this is the true meaning of honor and decency. He learns it by seeing her treat him, who she despised, with respect and dignity and hold her word, even though she hated him, even though Catelyn wasn't there, nobody was making her be nice to him. She could have kicked him in the face, punched him in the gut. She could have been a dick about it, and she wasn't. And she was, te- and and at first he sees it as a weakness, but then he's like, "Oh, people can be like this. Is this is yeah. this honor? <laughs> yeah. Could this be honor? My lost honor? Is that yes. you? Yes. And so she leads by example, and she turns things like dignity and respect away from what is weak about somebody, which is what I I personally feel Jamie thought that was a weakness. And now he sees it as a sort of inner strength that Brian has and that he doesn't. And he starts trying to emulate that as the story goes on. Excellent. Tana, thank you so much. It's the end of our episode, but do stick around because we want to talk about Tana's creative projects and she won a, she won a Hugo Award last night. Last so. night. Last night you have my Whoops, book. wait a minute. I practiced uh, this beforehand. <laughs> this is Tana's book, with, book written by Nettie Corfor. Graphic novel, I should say. Uh, so years ago, we bought the uh, we bought the original uh, Yoke Boys holding the original first. Uh, that's the first edition. Those are rare. Of volume one of the comic. <laughs> this is the graphic novel. This is the one that won the award, right? It's LaGuardia. Yes. Yes, that is what. So uh, originally through Dark Horse, uh, we published a four issue miniseries, floppy comics like what you have. There are four of them total. And then they were collected together into the graphic novel that you're holding, which, as George pointed out, does not mean it's pornography. (laughs) Uh, And last night in maybe what was one of the highlights of my entire human life, George R. R. Martin, who was the Toastmaster of the 2020 Hugo Awards, 
announced my name in our category as the winner. And I, we had no idea. Nettie was convinced we were going to lose. And I mean, not convinced, like we just, we were like, oh, this is a huge category and, and stiff competition and it's fine. And I was like consoling myself. George has lost the Hugo 16 times. I've already lost it one time. What's two times? This is fine. We'll be fine. And then he announced us as the winners and I have not actually returned to my physical body yet. <laughs> so I don't know what this podcast will be like, but I am floating among the clouds right now, my friends. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Oh, well, so that was a whole thing. If you guys want to uh, check out my Twitter handle, I know this is weird self-promotion. I it's not weird. Have very few Twitter followers, so mm-hmm. but follow me if you want to. The at Tana Ford on the Twitters, and I have like the pictures of the outfits George was wearing. I don't usually live tweet anything, but I was like, I'm live tweeting this. Uh, so if you're interested, check it out. Oh my god, it was fantastic. Oh. Uh, yeah. Definitely like it, Tana Ford, because uh, that was that was fun. There's lots of lots of good observations, um, and also check out check out the book. I mean, don't you know? Yes, please. Or you know, if you guys, if any of you guys, if any of you brilliant people are in this chat and uh, want to reach out to me, I have a few uh, Laguardia floppy comics. If you pay for shipping, I will uh, sign them and mail them to you. Email me at hey at tanaford.com. And uh, I might throw in some goodies. I don't know. Hey, where you go? So that's a thing we could do. I, I... Tana, that's <gasps> just so, so amazing that we got you the day after. And you won the Eisner Award last week yeah, as the well. The Eisner so, Award is... Wow. Um, I have a cutout for it. That's... I cut it out because we weren't going to be able to have... I did a live stream just with friends and like my parents <laughs> for the award ceremony, but I knew I would want to like hold something if I won. So I just printed out a version of the And you've got it out. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's just oh, like sitting Lord. on my desk. Thank you. Oh, I didn't even... Oh, But that's um, also... That's a very big deal for comics. The Eisner. Like I think huge. a lot of our circle are more familiar with the Hugo Awards, but Eisner's right. a very big deal for comics. It's the Oscar of comic books, and Karen Berger was my is my editor at um, Dark Horse. Uh, is this an okay time to talk about Absolutely. this? Absolutely, this is the time. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, the Dark Horse is who published LaGuardia, but Karen Berger, who is responsible for discovering talents like Neil Gaiman and Grant Morrison and the British invasion of comics. She ran Vertigo, an imprint of DC, for many, many years and gave us things like The Watchmen and um, and V for Vendetta and the Sandman series and all of this phenomenal stuff. And she retired and comics said, no, you can't retire. And so she came back <laughs> and has an imprint. And this book is one of the first books that has been published through Burger Books. So I just, we just did, Nettie Okorafor and I, with like the cover is of a Nigerian American doctor who is pregnant leading a protest march over the Brooklyn Bridge. This is it is an allegory on literal alien immigration at this moment in our American history. So please pick it up. It's as beautiful as I could make it. But we just if you if you guys listen on the podcast haven't heard it's LaGuardia because I, I keep thinking we show it but we're not actually saying it. Carry on, Tana. Yes, it is. Yes, it's LaGuardia, and it's named that because it is an interstellar airport in the future universe in in Nettie Okorafor's Binti universe. Two airports have interstellar travel. One of them is in Lagos, Lagos, Nigeria. The other is LaGuardia International and Interplanetary Airport, which is where the name comes from. So it is named after the airport, but it is an allegory of 
alien immigration that I'm fiercely proud of. And I found out today because Karen emailed me this morning because I have a relationship with Karen Berger, which blows my mind. She said that in her in her illustrious career, this winning the Eisner and the Hugo has only happened once. Do you know, uh, pop quiz, no one will answer this. Do you know what book won it? Sandman? It was, yes. Uh, it, that the she original edited. Sandman. The original Sandman yes. did it. Neil Gaiman. Uh, Neil Gaiman and I now have the same, I don't you know, have this, reality wow. check, bragging yeah. rights, accolades. Oh. I my I'm floating. I'm not even in my body right now. I don't now. know. I don't I'm know. kind of floating, I'm, so I can't yeah, even imagine being I'm five goblins in a tanner suit. Oh, we went to the beach this morning, and I just needed to see the sunrise. Oh man. Anyway, and there's a hurricane in Florida right now. I'm I'm podcasting from Florida. Thank God the storm gods hadn't thank you storm made my gods. power go out yet. I kept saying to you, anyway. the storm gods. Brienne is from the stormlands. Okay, the storm gods are going to look favorably on us. So. We, we did make a blood yes. sacrifice earlier, so. <laughs> we did, we did. Yep, yep, hide it. Right. The body is somewhere <laughs> behind Matt, so you just don't go left or right. No one will see it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, guys. So it has been it has been a week. We found out about the Eisners last weekend. We found about the Hugos last night. And George <laughs> announced it. He said my name, which I'm legally changing Tanya to Hard. Tanya, since that's what his New Jersey accent did to my name. And I'm with fine little, with it, man. Uh, what do you call that? Yes, T-A-N with a little curly Q <laughs> over the N. A. That's my name now. That's that's what I'm going to go by forever. He wore a silver Tanya hat. Ford. I'm going to print it out on a big canvas thing and put it in the middle of my house. Hugo Award winner, Tanya Ford. <gasps> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, you guys. So lucky. <sighs> We're so lucky to have you on, Tanya. All men must drink. And women. Uh, all men must drink. <laughs> Why don't you tell our listeners and watchers what we have lined up for next week, Lady Gwyn. Oh, well, next week, the fun is going to continue. We're going to be talking about Jamie, Jamie Lannister, uh, with K.W. Dent from uh, Blood of the Podcast. Uh, so I hope that you guys will join us right here, same time next week, Saturday at 5, for that. In the meantime, uh, please don't forget, if you haven't already, check out our newest episode which is the uh third edition of our primer all about the riverlands so uh check that out and yeah thanks to all of you who have tuned in today if you'd like to support the podcast we've got a patreon campaign so you can look us up there and be a patron if you want and so we'll see you next week thank you for tuning in have a great weekend hi this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 